0: So you might be looking at this slide thinking, we're talking about craziness today. Well, and then you might have looked in your bulletin and thought, are we ever getting out today? That might have been your first question. <laughs> well, by God's grace, we will. Um, We're actually going to stay on track with uh, the one-anothers today, but we're going to take a little bit different approach. Um, I'm going to start where Todd started last week. He said there was a statement that was worth repeating, and I would say, yes, it's worth repeating, and we're going to seek to unpack it a little bit this third week. And that statement was this. We can only know the fullness of God through a shared experience of His presence in our lives. That's why this series of one another's is so important. Because it's not just about how we relate to one another, but it's ultimately about how we come to know God under this new covenant. You see, the church is where the Spirit of God dwells, where His presence resides And so the fellowship of believers is a critical context of how we come to know God. You might remember this verse that was referenced from 1 Corinthians 3.16. And I do use the new revised Texas Standard Edition, which is the closest to the Koine Greek of the Greek New Testament. That's right. That's right. God's language. Uh, And so I'll translate the second person plural throughout today by the way as the text in y'all and so the scriptures say y'all are the temple of god and the spirit of god dwells in y'all or in you all if for our shubialkas in the congregation <laughs> but as uh, you guys know by now i enjoy looking at the big picture of scripture um Oftentimes, the big picture helps us to appreciate the details a little bit more. Uh, We're kind of modernist in a lot of ways, and we like to atomize the Scripture. So we'll take one word and focus in on that word and unpack that word for a week and be like, look at how much is in that one word. Maybe, maybe, but I'll tell you, A word only has meaning in in its context, and that context in this sense is Genesis to Revelation. It's the context in which God has revealed himself, and the context in which we must engage those scriptures. Uh, Word studies are good, and they're profitable, but only in the context of the vision of God from the beginning to the end. And so today, we're going to take a big picture view and seek by God's grace to Holistically look at God's presence among His people in the various temples of Scripture in order that we might understand better the importance of the one another's under the new covenant. Did you get that? That's our purpose today. Quit laughing, Matt Wade. As with any story, um, the place you begin and the final destination really do explain the path. And that's where we find ourselves today on a path, a path that has a very particular beginning and a very specific destination in in which it's leading. In fact, uh, Genesis 1 through 3, and and Genesis actually means the beginnings, uh, is actually a true history about the past that explains and gives meaning to the present. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot in those opening chapters of Genesis because it is actually trying to explain why we're where we're at, and uh, even in a sense, where it's intended that we're heading. Revelation 2022 20, is the conclusion of this true story uh, and the destination to which it is always heading all throughout Scripture. So, with these two pillars, they frame the story and vision of God. Well, we're going to start with the end today, and then we're going to come back through. Uh, As with uh, many stories, the conclusion often provides a very good guide to the themes and the ideas dominant throughout the story. And so it's helpful to look at where we're heading so that we can know when we begin and come up to this present point in redemptive history uh, where we've been where we're from, where we are, and where we're heading. That might help us to understand the one another's a little bit better. Because here's the thing, if we want to understand God's presence among us, and we do, because within that we come to understand how we relate to God, how we are to relate with one another. And in order to to understand this, we'll have to understand the biblical concept of temple. We'll need to trace that theme throughout so we'll have a better context for understanding what it means that the church is a temple of God and the Spirit and the significance of that. So, to trace this biblical theme, we're going to see where it's heading, where it began, and the path that it's taken up till now. Clear? The path? Our objective? Good. I don't want you to get lost. It'll be highly visual and it'll go quick. Don't worry. The themes repeat. Thankfully, God's... God knows that the greatest principle in education is repetition. And so he's a God, being the ultimate teacher, he's a God of great repetition. Um, I realize uh, our path may seem a little ambitious. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to bless our time. Father, thank you for your word that leads us and guides us. Lord, thank you for your word that gives witness to your son. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, our Savior. Lord, may your glory fill the earth to the praise of your glory, for you alone are worthy. And I pray that by your grace you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear the great vision you have for your people and for this world. And I pray that this great vision would inspire obedience dependence, and that we, your people, would abide with you all the more, to the praise of your name. Amen. And so we do begin in the final chapters of Revelation, from the starting point of our story. Uh, A few caveats before we begin. This vision that we find in Revelation looks to the future in anticipation of a creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And now, these scriptures, you might have read them before, they are a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. And you know know you're in apocalyptic literature when you start reading about dragons and lions and anything with multiple heads or seven or more eyes or horns, you know you're getting into the genre of apocalyptic literature. And so it's very symbolic. And here's the reality. A literal interpretation is an interpretation that's in keeping with its genre. For example, you wouldn't interpret poetry completely literal. If you did, you would miss the point of poetry. It's a highly figurative language. Same goes with apocalyptic language. Um, it's unlikely that Jesus is actually going to look like a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns and as slain as he sits on the throne. Now, that doesn't mean that, that that symbol and that image is without great meaning. Because you see, to interpret a symbol is not a symbol unless it refers to something real. Words are symbols. Symbols symbols that point to something real and when they're put together there's meaning there signs you go driving down the street and you get to a red light well that's not just a red light that's a symbol and there's a reality behind that symbol that keeps us all fairly safe and the reality is this you need to stop when that light is red and when it's green you might go and so there are symbols in apocalyptic literature and they have to be interpreted in light of the context because there's specific meanings behind those symbols and we're not going to interpret them all today. So sigh of relief. However uh, there are these visions and we have to understand these visions if we're going to understand the point of where everything is heading and so we're going to look at uh, Revelation 21 right now and you know what here's the thing You know, I I would love to say follow along, and you're welcome to. But I want you to know this, too, that studies have been done. I'm an education guy. And just listening, they've actually found, will help you to retain more. So listen and know this. The words that I'm speaking are the very words of God, and you'll see them visually expressed behind me. It might be helpful because visions, by their very nature, are visual. So uh, try to listen and absorb and see The vision that God is laying out there before us. I'm going to start with Revelation 21. Then John the Revelator says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Sea is symbolic for evil or void or darkness, just so you know, if that threw you for a loop. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. You hear the repetition? That's when you go, oh, that's important. And you'll hear it all the way throughout. That's really the point of it all, is God will dwell among His people, they will be His people, and He will be their God. That's our ultimate destination. If you walk away from anything, no. That's where we're heading. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. few themes I want you to pick up, and don't worry, you'll remember them, because we're going to repeat them over and over and over. Death is something that is gone. This new heavens and this new earth has come down from heaven where God dwells. So God brought this city down and he made this city. Okay? And in this city, he dwells with his people. He's their God. They're his people. Death and the first things have passed away and God rules uncontested from his throne. And his people inherit eternal life as sons and daughters of the living God children of God, receive their inheritance. Okay? Not going to unpack it. Just keep it there floating around because as we go through the scriptures, you'll go, there it is over and over and over. Here's where we are. Next ones we're going to look at, Revelation 21, 9 through 27. Then one of the seven angels, and by the way, each of these, it's really three parallel visions. Each of the new visions start with then. So Just so you know, there's a cue there of why these are three visions, but they're parallel. Then, and they emphasize different things. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, he's going to go through a lot. that You're not going to necessarily see the bride, the wife, of the Lamb. But remember, that's what he's revealing to him here, okay? And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Where does this take place? A great and high mountain. Remember that. That actually comes up over and over throughout all the Scripture. A great and high mountain. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance, brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. So imagine that big cube, you saw these gates, and you might not be able to say that. it says Judah in front, which means this gate would have been coming out towards the east. And there were twelve of them, three on each side, with each of the twelve names of the tribes of Israel, which, by the way, that's going to come up again. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, what was this about again? This vision, the Bride of the Lamb. And here we have the gates for the, all the peoples of Israel and this foundation of the apostles, who, by the way, are our 12 representatives, if you didn't know, for the church, the church of Christ. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Very important, by the way. Take note. A square, a perfect cube, okay? And its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. That's a cube. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. I'm not familiar with angelic measurements, so I'm not going to. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. It's going to name a lot of those. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Seeing the vision so far? And he said, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. God and the Lamb are the temple." And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and the lamp is the Lamb. Y'all are probably hearing all kinds of things you heard in the New Testament all of a sudden coming about again, this light of the world, this lamp. The nations, which by the way, this is talking about the bride of Christ. So the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there'll no be night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you seeing the vision? Are you hearing those particular descriptors? Because we're going to be unpacking them this whole time, but we're just going to do it through the history of what they're talking about. And so here we see the high mountain of Jerusalem. I'm going to give you a little refresher here. This temple city where God's glory resides among his people, 12 tribes of Israel, the apostles of Christ, the church, and God's glory illumines it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The cube, I'll go ahead and clue you in, is the exact shape of the Holy of Holies, the only things that are described in that shape. The Holy of Holies is a place where God dwells. And so here you have a city you know, before the Holy of Holies existed here and all the city was all around it, right? Well, now all the people of God and this great city of God is there in this Holy of Holies. And the theme that we heard repeated is now actual. God is their God and they are His people. There is no boundary. They are all together. There is no temple. Why? Because all the peoples of God exist with Him. In the holy of holies. That's where we're heading. And the nations, the kings of the earth bring glory into it. And by the way, remember, this is talking about the bride, the wife of the lamb. Kings and nations. Because we're going to be talking about that too. It's actually a very important theme. So the third vision, Revelation 22. Just a few verses here. That was the long one. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Another recurring theme that we'll be looking at. Clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life. Yet another theme that will be coming about. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, just as there is no death. So there will be no curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Another recurring theme, God is there, the throne, the Lamb. His bondservants will serve Him. Those again are His people. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Name is an important concept. Name is, for example, in a household, the name would be there, okay? And the name is the character, works, and reputation that characterize that household. And so in an honor-shame society, if you're in this household, you uphold that name so that you can bring honor to it. And if you don't, you have dishonored that name. And so the Lord's name will be on their foreheads. His character, works, and reputation will be manifest in His people. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. They're going to reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he goes on from there. Here's the peculiar vision it's giving inside here of the throne of God and the lamb, and yeah, you've got a highly stylized lamb, but that's okay. And you've got this river of life flowing through from it, from it, by the way. It's flowing out to the east. And you've got the nations there, the glory of God, and they're taking from the trees of life. So you see this vision here, and if I put them all together, you see something like this in this big vision, though there should be more people, and you know, I'm not an artist, so I can't, depicted the way I might like, but that's fairly close. And you see the gates and you see the foundation. You get a sense of what this is, but just a sense, because I'll tell you, there were many, many books before those chapters that actually explain what all this is. But you know what? These are the themes that we need to be honing in on because it's the end of the story. It's the destination to which we're traveling. Very good. And so... Now, we have before us to unpack some of these symbols, and we're going to go to Genesis. And actually, don't be concerned if we spend some time here. Most of the symbols are all unpacked in the first chapters of Genesis. And then we'll just see them repeated throughout up to Christ. And you'll see that all of them are pointing to Christ all along. And then you'll understand where we are in this current form of the temple under the new covenant. And so, we move to a different time. Interesting parallel there. Okay. A new time. The creation of the heavens and the earth. We're in Genesis now. The story about beginnings that explain and give meaning to our present situation. Yes, Lord. Okay. And so in Genesis 1, we see God creating all the heavens and the earth, right? Do you remember the construction? God said, and it was... And he saw, and what did he say? It was good. And you know what? I just sometimes it's important to define terms. We like we say good a lot, right? That's good. This is good. These are good. What in the world is good? And I think Genesis one defines that concept for us, which is a very important concept. Good is that which is in keeping with the design and intent of the Creator. Fair enough? God said, it was, He saw, and it was good. All right? Pretty simple definition. That which is in keeping with the design and intent of the Creator is that which is good. And so you have God create all the heavens and the earth, and everything in them, and He blesses them, and and then we get down to a point that, that, that there actually is a distinction in this story here. Because God has been spoken of in, three pers- in the third person, right? God said, God did this, God did that. And then all of a sudden it shifts to first person. Which, in a history, you might pay attention when it does, because it's a clue that something very important is coming. And so then in 126, then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule, I'm going to paraphrase, over all the creatures of the earth. Now we hear image and likeness and we often speculate on all kinds of things and typically what a society will do is take what it values and then go that's what that really means. Well this happened in a very specific context of the ancient Near East and it's a context in which those terms have a lot of meaning. And a very specific meaning specific meanings we find repeating through scripture so I want to explain those just real quick in the ancient near east they had this idea of likeness and uh, this is a place where these are very much in sync likeness uh, meant that a man has a special relationship to God like that of father and son and the king was said to be in the likeness of God the king of Mesopotamian lands of the ancient Near East was said to be God's son. That was his identity, was a son. And that identity is why he also, as a son, is why he came to be understood as the one who bears the image of God. And it, the one in the image of God has a special position and status as a king under God. Are you with me? So, a son in the likeness of God, and because of son, because of his royal status, necessarily the ruler who's ruling on behalf of God. A special status and position as kings under God. And so, and I'll tell you some of the things in their culture. You see this image here, and I put on there, 13th century B.C., the Pharaoh Ramses II. His image was hewn out of rock and was set up close to Beirut, and this image, wherever the image of the king was, that was said to mark the extent of his rule. And you might notice some interesting things about this uh, picture. Do you know what King Ramses' feet are actually on right there? Because this is important. Do you know what that's called? It's called a footstool. It's like, wow, is that a trick question? But a footstool at the throne of a king Is a place where heaven meets earth. And the blessings of God are mediated through that king and it flows out to all the peoples of his land. Are you with me? And so this image, the image of the king, gets set up to the furthest extent of his rule, whereby the blessings of God are mediated through him, the very Son of God where his feet touch the footstool so the blessings of God flow down and they go out to all the people of his land. Do you see the vision? Very specific terms being used here with very specific meanings in the ancient Near East. However, as with most biblical concepts, their meanings aren't always completely synonymous with the meanings of the time. And so we look for the place that Scripture makes a distinction of these things. The distinction is here. In these Scriptures, we come to find God created a man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. We come to find that all the peoples of the earth bear the image of God. Not just one elite king, but a nation of kings a nation of sons, daughters of God, who rule over the earth that God has created and all of its creatures. They rule as a result of their royal status. And even in Psalm 8, you come to see the terms that are used to describe that man was crowned with glory and honor, Uh, descriptors that are only used for kings, by the way. So... Uh, The psalmist certainly understood it this way, and you'll see that throughout the rest of Scripture as well, that that's the way humans were seen to be. And so the idea is this. God has put His image, because you're His sons, His daughters, His image is with you, and you rule over all of creation. And what you're to do is this, because you're all image bearers, As you go and multiply and fill the earth. Oh, that's right. That's right there next. I'm sorry. And God blessed men and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. In case you thought that interpretation was wrong, the very next verse makes it very clear that that's exactly what he meant. So, because you're sons and daughters of God, and and God's image is there and you're to rule in his stead, he wants you image bearers to go, And fill the earth with his image, right? To establish his reign over all the earth. To subdue it. That means to bring under the authority of. So you, kings of God, are to bring this whole world under the authority of God. Wow, wait till we get to the Great Commission. It was right there all all along. And you're to rule, and this rule is a benevolent rule. You're to care for. You're to provide for. You're to guide all of life to coming under the rule and reign of God. And so there's a couple of things here. There's a covenant between us and God whereby we are sons and daughters, His subjects, who do as He pleases. That's what He created us for, that's what's good, that's His will which is good, acceptable, and perfect. But we also have a relation to all the world to care for it, to lovingly rule, not a tyrannical rule. It's really more of a servant kingship. We're to serve it. And so this is a uh, vision of what God has intended man to be. And it's important because I know you're thinking, aren't we talking about the temple? Yes, we definitely are. And one of the things that we come to find is this. The garden is a temple of sorts. And so you see the intention of God with man, for man to cover the earth with his glory through the image of this man. And now I want to point to Genesis 2, 7 through 17. And this is actually going to talk about the temple and the context of that particular vision. So it says this, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life, and man became a living being. So get the picture here. God bears his arm down, picks up the ground of the earth, shapes it and forms it into his image. Are you following with all the imagery here? (sighs) Breathes his very spirit into him, and he becomes a living being. Because I assure you, an agrarious ancient Near Eastern understood exactly what that meant and they saw the picture very vividly there. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for the food. The tree of life, you hear these themes coming up from the end. Also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river used to flow out of Eden. Oh, that's right, the river of life, I remember, that's coming out from the throne of God. Okay. To water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. It's going to name the rivers, which I'll just tell you what the Greek names mean. Because it's not a modern history, by the way, that's trying to tell you where you can map out Eden on the map. That wasn't their concern at all. And so the name of the first is Diffusion. It flows around the whole land of tent dwellings where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. The bellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Breaking forth. It flows around the whole land of darkness. The name of the third river is a swift current. It flows east of the plains. And the fourth river is fruitfulness they were commissioned to go and fill the world be fruitful multiply and fill the earth and by the way before this story it says God had not yet brought the waters and there was no man to cultivate the garden the very next thing it addresses is God bringing the waters to fill all the earth you see the vision well if that really is the vision my guess is the very next thing he's going to go to is putting a man in the garden let's see if he does that Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. There he is, the two things he needed. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, and from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. A few things about this garden I want to point out real quick, and then we're moving real fast. But hone in right here. Understanding this garden is very, very important to understanding all the rest of these temples. First of all, the Garden Eden, of Eden is very clearly characterized by the presence of God, and we find that in Genesis chapter 3, where God is roaming to and fro in the cool of the garden. Do you remember? Well, this verb construction is the same verb that describes a divine presence in later temple sanctuaries. Matter of fact, it's the only place that that construction is ever found is in the context of God's divine presence in the midst of his sanctuary. A place where words are important, they're only important and their meaning is derived from the rest of the context. Like the later tabernacle and temple, the entrance to the Garden of Eden was in the east. And we come to find it's guarded by cherubim later on. In the center of the Garden of Eden is the Tree of Life. Similarly, the center of the tabernacle and the temple, guess what exists there? The menorah, a stylized Tree of Life. In the center of the Garden, the idea behind this tree, and you see it in the end, is that fullness of life can be found in this sanctuary. This is where the provisions of God are given. This is where... There, and you see this in the instructions for the sanctuaries in the Torah. Talk about this. Also, it's a recurrent theme in the Psalms of the provision of God from this tree of life. For the responsibility and task given to Adam in the garden. And this is some other very specific language that's being used. He said he is to Samarit, it. He is to keep it. Uh, that word also is only used in one other place in all of the uh, Hebrew scriptures. And it's to refer to the duty of the Levites in guarding and protecting and keeping holy the sanctuary. Are you seeing the vision of this man in the midst of this temple where God dwells, where His provisions are mediated, where He brings about His law and commissions Him to go and fill the earth and establish His image over all the face of the earth? And this man, we are there to be that image bearer, to be those sons and daughters and to extend it out this temple where God dwells, and we're to keep it holy. So we're also like priests, keeping holy the place where God dwells. And the vision is that that holy sanctuary gets extended into all the earth. Amen is right. That's what we long for. And so I want you to see that vision. I even want you to look at this because where do those four river, where do rivers flow from? You farmers out there, you would answer real quick because your mindsets are already right for this kind of a talk. Uh, They flow from uphill down. Yes, they do. And all the waters of life flow from the throne of God and go and fill all the earth from there. And so the picture of the throne of God is this elevated mountain whereby the waters flow down and they make provision where the trees of life are, where all the inhabitants may be provided for and man is to be his image bearer extending that in all the earth the waters have already gone in all the earth so that god can fill all the earth with his rule with his presence sound like a similar vision by the way we might be onto something here it's the same place that it's heading to in revelation 2022 20, And so we know the rest of this story and the rest of the story goes something like this. And Now we get to go through here pretty quick. By the way, where's the relationship with God had? In his temple where he's present with his people. Where we enjoy his provision. Where we come under his law, right? And where we have this covenant with him. Well, that becomes important because actually they violated the covenant, didn't they? They disobeyed God. They actually were not satisfied with his provision and wanted the one thing that he said they couldn't eat. They spurned his provision and they didn't trust him. They trusted Satan. And the ironic thing is, these rulers over heaven and earth actually stepped down. You might wonder how Satan became the ruler of the earth. We handed it right over to him. As we, the rulers, stepped down from our rule, did not keep the garden holy took a provision that God had not given us and spurned His provision and disobeyed His law. We broke covenant. With the world, with God, we failed at every level. That's what the story of Genesis is about. And so we got rejected from the garden. Now the garden's a temple, right? Where God's presence dwells. How can you be, dwell with God and Him with His people if you're expelled from His presence? Well, that's the great question of Scripture, It's not how might I be saved. A question comes before that is, what does salvation even mean? Jesus describes it. This is eternal life that you may know the Father and the Son who He sent. He said eternal life actually exists in that temple where God is, but you're outside of that. And so we need to be saved. We need to be brought back into the presence of God whereby we can enjoy the covenant with Him and carry out His purpose for us those made in his likeness, his sons, those who are his image bearers, establishing his rule over all the earth. And so we're expelled from the garden. And then we come to to, uh, Noah, and we see, and God wipes out the earth, and he tries to establish Noah, but we see this, man is a failure. (laughs) It ain't gonna happen unless God intervenes in some way, and this is the ultimate show of that, and that's the Tower of Babel. This is man's real response to his current situation it's this I want to read just verse 4 here they said well first of all they settled to the east so they're going out away from God where they use God's provisions to fashion brick and tar into mortar and this is what they said in verse 4 chapter 11 they said come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in heaven and let us make for ourselves a name otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth did you hear similar themes in that construction well they're there intentionally so that you don't miss the meaning of what the Tower of Babel is, which, by the way, is what we gravitate towards. It's the gap of the human failure. Who's the builder of the holy city? Remember? Comes down of heaven from who? God. He's the builder. Oh, we're building our own city here. That's right. And whose residence is it? God takes up residence in his city and brings his people in with him. You know who resides in this city? We do. And you know what? God doesn't get to exist in heaven over to Himself ruling all things. We're going to build it up to heaven so we can rule over all things. Not to rule under God as sons, but to rule as Satan tempted to actually be like God. Not as sons, as sovereigns over our own lives. And because who does reside in the heavenlies, by the way? God. Yeah. We want to go overthrowing. And who determines the place, the patterns, and then takes up residence in the temple of God? Well, they did. This is the temple we'll build, and we'll do it the way we want, and we'll build it all the way up to heavens, and God will become irrelevant and redundant. And that was the intent. How can we make God irrelevant? And whose name was to be established? Was it the name of God? The character, the works, the reputation, the renown of God? no. We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll, we will be unto ourselves a standard of what is good. And every man, I'm gonna, here, here's one you hear in Scripture that should send chills down your spine, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Let that be a warning as we come here closer to the temple now because there will be a place of great conviction for us they wanted to do it their way not god's i want to do it a way that i like that suits me pretty well that's that's what the tower of babel is all about and i want to make god redundant and irrelevant i want to make sure i can secure the path and all the things that i want romans 123 says this well professing to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. I'm glad we don't do this anymore. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. Amen. That's Dubai and the current tallest uh, skyscraper in the world. By the way, there's two more planned to top it, the tallest of which is one mile high. One writer said, "The human wealth, the wealth of human meanings converge. In the single image of Babel. On the one side we can see and be be cautious here. We see the longings of community, achievement, civilization, culture, technology, safety, security, permanence and fame. Those sound like good things. But countering these aspirations we sense the moral judgment against idolatry, pride, self-reliance the urge of material power, and the human illusion of infinite achievement. It's a picture of misguided human aspirations ending in confusion. That's the call of the world. And when God isn't among his people, and when we're banished from his presence, there's where we go. So then all of a sudden, God moves, and he shows himself on several mountains in his glory. And he starts to reveal himself in what they call theophanies, appearings of his glory, and he speaks. And he he raises up a people with Abraham, and, and he delivers them from Egypt. There we are. And he delivers them from, from Egypt and he, with various plagues and actually he hardens their heart because he has an intention in all that and it's that all the world might know that I'm God. Which is a good thing. And then here we come to Exodus 40. Just a few verses here in 34. This is after they made the tabernacle and everything in it which we're going to look at a little bit. But I want you to hear, this is the point because remember God dwelling with his people is a very important theme. Here's what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which, by the way, the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting. Who do you meet there with? God. Yeah, that's where he dwells. Uh, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, because where his representative presence is, that's actually his glory, which could be defined as the physical, visible manifestation of his presence that reveals his character, makes his name known. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel. By the way, you remember that vision of the great city of God, the square, the the Holy of Holies, well, this is the way God's people align around God, the Holy of Holies, in the vision where he dwells. And you've got three tribes on each side. Out in the east, there is Judah. And so you understand some allusions in the tabernacle. It's a closed space. Uh, the holy place, which is the larger place here in front, is a place where priests could enter. Uh, from time to time to carry out their duties. And by the way, most of those duties do not actually have to do with cleansing his people. Most of them have to do actually with cleansing the place where God dwells because he has to dwell in holiness. Are you with me? Uh, There was atonement made for people annually, but most of the sacrifices were applied to keep the place where God dwells sanctified because that was the much more important thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't dwell with his people, or he'd come down and judge them all. Those are kind of the two options. And so he made a way to dwell among these people. And you have the tree of life here, and you actually have that back in the back, which is the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, there's contained the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place of the covenant. And this is actually the place where God's presence actually dwells. And within that Ark, you have the law of God. Oh, just like the other sanctuary, where God rules through his law. You have the manna of God, which is God's provision for his people and you have the rod of Aaron which is his priesthood the way that we could be they could be covenantly related to God through the priesthood and receive his provision and uphold his law as his people so he would be God and they will be his people are you seeing the vision is recurring here um and this is actually referred to in the Psalms as the footstool of God the ark of the covenant is remember that footstool Ancient Near Eastern times, the footstool of the king was a place where God's love was manifest and his provisions came down and flowed out from the foot of the king, the foot of the footstool, and those blessings were mediated to all of his people. This is where heaven meets earth, where God comes down and his provisions of rule, of all the things that they need for life, and of the priesthood so that he could have a covenant relationship with them came down, and it's interesting because Jesus becomes the fulfillment of this. He becomes the great high priest to which there is no other. He is the bread of life, the provision of life that came down from God for all the world. And he brings about the blood of a new covenant. He fulfilled the old covenant and the law, and now we live by the law of Christ. And he is the provision of God, the bread of life by which we might be reconciled to God. And the very spirit of God, as you see in that dove, comes upon him. And he is the glory of God. He is the fulfillment of all these things. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. These things are all pointing to him all along. And then we have the temple. Same thing. Presence of God comes down, fills the temple. And Solomon dedicates that temple. And it's interesting because that temple is about God dwelling with his people. And it is about uh, the law of God being upheld, his people being obedient to him. And it's also about this, that we would pray and you would hear in heaven. See, they saw that as the means through which God would hear them and respond to their needs. But they also said this. It's interesting because God's intention has always been the whole world, not just one people. They said, even the foreigner, when he comes, and he will come because he will hear of your great deeds. So the foreigner will come when he comes here in heaven when he looks to this temple and answer his prayers that all the world might know that you are God. We don't ever get to separate any of this from the mission of God to fill the world with his representative presence, ever. And so the temple, we see the same thing. This arboreal setting. Uh, same instruments, same uh, cubicle shape of the holy of holies, and yet it's set in the context of a city. And so you now you have this temple city. And by the way, even within the law, they had to go outside the city at times because the whole city was holy. And the idea is that God's presence from that city would go and fill the world. But they fail continually. And then all of a sudden, God makes provision because we just can't keep up the covenant. We're not good enough. We're ultimate failures. And by the way, he's been communicating Christ all along and all of a sudden Jesus Christ comes on the scene. This one who is the actual son of God. This one who bears the perfect image of God for he is God, very God himself. Made man. Came and dwelled among. He, here's the language of John, he tabernacled among, among us. And he's the bread of life. And we uphold the law of Christ. And He's our Lord and our King. The very Son of God. And just like the dedication of all tabernacles before, so He comes. And the Spirit of God descends on Him like a dove with great glory. And the Father shouts out from heaven, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And yet, He didn't come to reign the way we thought He would. Instead, He comes... And he becomes a sacrifice for us. He becomes the path by which we might be reconciled to God because you remember the wages of sin is death. And so God is reconciling us to himself through his son. And so the son has to go and bear the curse that kept us apart, right? Death. Death separation and so jesus is separated from the city that's why i like that picture by the way because he's brought outside the city what's the city it's the temple city where god's presence dwells well he was cursed he was set outside that city bearing the punishment that we had been given as sinners to be outside the presence of god and he took on the very judgment of god in death on behalf of you behalf of me And I don't know if you remember what happened. We're still on temples. The veil of the Holy of Holies was rent. Because when Jesus died, God's glory no longer dwelled in that Holy of Holies. There was a new temple being established. Do you remember? So now the glory, the, the glory of God and the Holy of Holies is no longer in a temple made by human hands. And he resurrected from the dead. He, he conquered death. And he appeared to many. And do you remember? He gave them a commission. Do you remember what he said? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. I am the ruler now. Therefore, you go, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I, God, very God, by the way, will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see where the new temple is? Jesus ascended, maybe not yet, because it hadn't it hadn't descended yet. Jesus ascended. If you remember in John fourteen, he said, "No, no, no, it's better that I leave, because I'm going to send a helper to you." So Jesus says it's better than he would be right here among us right now. Just so you know, and that helper was the very Spirit of God. By the way, is that God very God? The Spirit? He's kind of the third person of Trinity. We kind of lop off a little bit, like not really God, but yeah, he's God. No, God very God, who dwells among you. And we saw the dedication of this temple just like we do all of them at Pentecost when flames of tongues came down, and now Babel was reversed. No longer were the languages confused, but now everyone understood in their own language, and the people of God were sent to fill all the world. The great command, the the great command from the beginning, the place where we're heading to even now, to go and fill the world with His presence.